Happy New Year and welcome to episode 107 of The Real Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photography, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. Today my guest is Amr Alfiki, and Amr has a pretty incredible story about his journey from Egypt to the United States, and we will get into all of that. But before that, I have one announcement to make. The first show at the JKC Gallery in Trenton will feature a curated show by Float Magazine, and that, of course, is Donna Sterling and Yoav Friedlander. And right now, they are holding an open call for that show. It's called The Road, and if you visit floatmagazine.us, you can learn more about the show. I'll just read a little bit from the description. We are looking for images that document the American road trip from various angles and photographic approaches. All photographic styles and genres are welcome, but all images must have been taken within the United States. And the submission fee is $5 for up to five images. Uh, The only thing is the deadline is coming up soon, and that is January 17th. So check it out, floatmagazine.us. All right, so Amr Elfiki is an Egyptian award-winning documentary photographer and filmmaker based in New York City. He was studying medicine when the Egyptian revolution began, and working as a medic during the uprising, Amr was accused of aiding the enemy and ended up serving time in jail on several occasions. Uh, He was not allowed to complete his degree in medicine and had to flee Egypt and leave his family in order to avoid more potential prison time. During this transition from Egypt to the United States, Amr began using his phone to document his life, and that work became a visual diary that was published by the New York Times Lens blog in 2016. Since then, Amr has participated in many workshops and internships in the photojournalism world and has done work for many of the major news outlets. Uh, Amr's work documenting the Muslim-American experience in the United States has been featured in the New York Times, Reuters, Time, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Huffington Post, and other major international publications. He is currently a frequent contributor to the New York Times and Reuters. And I'll just read from his bio a little bit because he actually has a pretty extensive bio. Amr's work has been displayed in major international festivals such as Photoville. In 2017, he was selected to participate in the New York Times Portfolio Review, Eddie Adams Workshop, and the Missouri Photo Workshop. Uh, Besides his work as a photojournalist, Amr was a photo intern at the Magnum Foundation and also worked as a teacher's assistant with Fred Richen, the former dean of the International Center of Photography School, and James Estrin, senior staff photographer and co-editor of the New York Times Lens. Uh, He received his Master's of Arts in Journalism from the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, uh, and he recently finished his internship at National Public Radio in Washington, D.C., So let me just thank Nicole Crane for putting Amr and I together for this episode. Nicole has become one of my best bookers for the show. (laughs) Thank you, Nicole. And you should follow her at Nicole underscore Crane on Instagram. Also, you should follow Everyday Rural America, which Nicole founded. And also, thanks to Amr for making time for me because I know he was running back and forth between Philadelphia and New York while he was searching for a more permanent residence. And thank you all for such a great year last year. Of course, always thanks for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Your 
were planning on staying in New York now for a while. Mm -hmm. And then, but the place you were going to rent backed out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. that sucks. But you, so you, that's why you came up from Philly. Yeah, that's exactly why I came up from Philly. Oh, man. How long, like, are you able to hang out in Philly with your friend? A few days. I arrived on Thursday. Yeah. Uh, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. Uh-huh. He's been my friend since we were in Egypt, so... Oh, so he came my, from... Yeah, Egypt. he's my companion. He's oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Was he a medic? Uh, no, he's an environmentalist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did you grow up together? Kinda. Uh, we yeah. went together the same high school. We weren't yeah. close at that point. But mm -hmm. uh, when the revolution happened, we got closer. And then we ended up here, both kind of exiled. So um, Right. Right. And obviously, we want to talk about that. And I, I just mentioned something that maybe people don't know. You started out your career in medicine. Yeah. Yeah. You studied yeah. medicine. I studied medicine for six years. Are, are you doctor? Uh, what's your qualification? So what happened is I spent six years in medical school in Alexandria, Egypt. And three days before my final surgery exam, the dean called me into his office to tell me that I was banned from doing my exam. What? Uh, yeah, uh, they kind of didn't like what I was doing. Uh, they were supporting the uh, regime. And he was like, oh, you were in prison. I was like, yeah, because I was a medic. I wasn't doing anything else. And you know that. And then he kind of like smirked at me. And he was like, you know why you're being banned from doing your exam. Oh, so uh, you, yeah. your, your medical career started before yeah. the overthrow yeah. and then and continued through it. And then you acted as a medic during the yeah. riots. I was on my third year uh, in medical <sighs> school. And because you were seen as aiding the enemy, mm -hmm. you got kicked out of school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, that's basically what happened. I had the U.S. Uh, visa and mm -hmm. my family. I didn't have any intention to come to the U.S. And the only reason I got the U.S. visa was just my friends were applying and they thought I spoke better English than theirs. So they were like, why don't you come with us and do the interview on our behalf? And I was like, okay, so if you were you, their translator. Yeah, if you're paying for my fees, like my application fees and uh, my transportation, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I can do that for you guys. And and then we got the US visa. Um, mm -hmm. I think they're all, uh, yeah, they all ended up in the US at some point. Oh, um, okay. Once one in... Ohio, one in Wisconsin, yeah. one in Florida. Right. So this was all part of Arab Spring, right? Yeah. They were like yeah. all like upper middle class, middle class, upper middle class students who studied pharmacy, engineering, medicine, environmental science, um, different things. And they participated in something as huge as the Egyptian revolution. Right. And they all like uh, were reduced to doing menial jobs, odd jobs in the US. And for me, that was so unfair because they were a part of like something so beautiful and something so real that the whole world was watching and learning from. I'm not dim diminishing the value of being a dishwasher or being a delivery person, right, right. but they were not meant to be. That was to not do the this path kind of, yeah. they were on. Yeah. Right. And they were well onto a path <laughs> yeah. of, uh, right, right. So, uh, so I thought that was unfair. Uh, I didn't have much resources, so I only had an iPhone. So I started documenting our journey. And I remember telling one of my friends, when he saw like me taking pictures all the time, I said, listen, dude, like, I think we're going to need these pictures in 10 years. 
because everybody's talking about what happened in Egypt, but no one is talking about what happened to us after we were kicked out of our own country. And they were supportive. So I kept on like taking pictures on my iPhone until I moved to New York in 2015. Mm. And by the end of 2016, I met with Jim Estrin oh, yeah. uh, from the New York Times. And yeah. when he saw the story, he thought it was like worth publishing. Yeah. And that when my career in photojournalism and documentary photography took off. It was, basically. <laughs> it was not a career you planned at all. It was not. No. It was not at all. Yeah. It, I've never like, if you ask me like six years ago, like seven years ago, I never seen myself being a photojournalist or uh, I didn't really like being a doctor. And the reason I did it is because I wanted to make my parents happy. Mm, that was the only reason. The classic story. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I was always interested in documentary filmmaking and fiction filmmaking. And for me, photography was the alternative when I didn't have resources to make my own film. Right. It's it's one step less yeah. expensive than yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. Yes. And you started with a phone. I mean, that's, yeah. that's wild. But yeah. now I'm writing the the script, uh, my first script, to remake the story that's in a fiction uh, format. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. And is that what you're going to be working on while you're here in New York? Um, we're still, I'm working on the script. It's just still like the like early phases. Uh, I don't know where the process is going to take me, uh, but it's something, it's definitely something I want to do. So yeah. Are you we'll working, see what happens. working with people? Or? Some of my friends are, uh, they were like filmmakers in Egypt and then now they moved to California. Yeah. Uh, so they're That's a good kind place of to like, be. Yeah, they're kind of, <laughs> yeah, uh, offering me some advices and feedback. I'm sure that they're telling to you to come out to California, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty close to where I came from, actually, Alexandria, Egypt. I grew up by the beach. Oh, so for me, California would be like, like the right place for me. The the, the feel of it, and yeah. Because the, oh, the ocean yeah. is so far away from the city here. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a hike. You grew up in Alexandria. I grew up in Alexandria. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think you were being political, or did you do you see yourself as apolitical? I think everyone is political. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I think everyone is political. But for me, at that point in my life, when I was in school, I didn't. I was more of like a humanitarian. Right. Uh, I would like I cared more about the well-being of people expressing their opinions and practicing their freedom and freedom of expression. And I wanted to help in any capacity. So, but I didn't. I didn't have any political leaning. But at some point, like you find yourself in like amidst chaos and being treated as one of like either sides. In my case, the government treated me like one of the youth who participate in the Arab Spring. And also the, the Arab Spring is actually like a soft definition of what was happening. Like my generation, we prefer the Egyptian Revolution because the Arab Spring doesn't really does um, justice to all these people who were killed. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, because it, it it's it's almost like too light uh, a term. Yeah, it's, it's right. it doesn't really cry what was happening. It was a it's full more like on a revolution. Yeah. yeah, you had a full on revolution. Yeah. Right, right. Not a, uh, you know, handing out daisies uh, right. to make peace. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a pretty interesting story. And then what did you what did your folks do in Alexandria? How were you raised? So my dad is an English teacher. Uh, my mom, she was a housewife. My brother is uh, an accountant. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and I have like a little sister. She's still in high school. And still in Egypt? Between Egypt and UAE. Oh, okay. Yeah. Go, she goes to school in the UAE? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I was born in Kuwait, but I spend most of my life in Egypt. Oh, um, okay. So like we grew up kind of like traveling around Gulf countries, right. between Gulf countries and Egypt. Was that your father's work? Or? Yeah. So he was at different universities or different colleges? Or? Yeah, he yeah. was teaching English in, in, in Kuwait. And then after the Gulf War started, uh, he moved back to Alexandria. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You say... Um, well, I was reading your bio. It says you're based in New York now. Yeah. Um, um, and you can't go back right now. Right? To Egypt? Yeah. Uh, no, I cannot. Do you have that desire? I mean, do you see yourself? All the time. Yeah. Uh, I miss home every single moment of my life. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard. Like, can you imagine yourself like visiting Egypt for a couple of weeks and then you figure out that you cannot go back? to your home, the United States, and you get stuck in Egypt for more than five years. It wasn't planned, it was, I was not prepared. I didn't even say bye to my family in a proper way. Um, so that was, that was hard and it's still hard. And for me, I, most of my experience in the US away from home was actually like more intense than my experience in prison. Mm. It affected me big time. And it kind of like shaped the person I become and the kind of work I want to do. But still, I'm still grateful to the experience, to everything that happened. It was eye-opening. It was very enlightening for me. Now I feel like I kind of belong to both worlds. I'm Egyptian. Yeah. I'm Mediterranean. I'm North African. I'm Muslim. I'm Arab. I cannot deny all these parts of me. And I'm also kind of New Yorker because it's everybody is... Yeah. And we're all immigrants here, so (laughs) um, I appreciate and embrace the New York culture as well. Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah, Yeah. these are all like parts of me at this point. How long were you in prison? Well, I got arrested nine times. Oh, wow. Yeah, nine times. And I would spend like from a few hours to like up to a few days. So like jail might be the right word, but... In 2012, there was a huge case against me and a couple of my friends. And they fabricated like a whole thing mm. against all of us. And that's the, that's the, 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 it's the main reason why I cannot go back home now. Because if I go, if I go to Egypt tomorrow, I'll be arrested at Cairo airport and I will be sent to jail until I see a judge. And the judge will say like, you missed your trial. Oh, so <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to be in big trouble. So. Uh, yeah. And their eyes, you're a fugitive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all, it's also like, it's also nice that I, sometimes I get to see my family in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like think that adds to our experience as family and right. like we bond in different levels. Yeah. It's not like you're just like, you come home from being away for a long time and mm-hmm. just like being like in your own play, but also like we're exploring different things and different uh, cultures and see new people that we're like, we're like, we're seeing each other at the same time. So for me, that I think that's super cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I embrace it. <laughs> you're, you know, you're, and your work deals with identity. Uh, yeah. A good part of your work deals with identity. And you talk about um, your Arabness and your Muslimness. And uh, it, you have a quote from the psychology of hatred. When I first arrived to the U.S., my attempt to become invisible was unsuccessful as someone who was not particularly religious, my experiences throughout the U.S. constantly reminded me of my Muslimness and Arabness. Whether I liked it or not, in the American collective mind, I belonged to a larger group that I wasn't particularly aware of. 
I became a walking image of a preconceived group that I never thought I belonged to. So the work that you do, you know, like I said, it, it, it deals a lot with this identity. But, you know, I was thinking about that quote and how that was a that was an issue people had to deal with, uh, whether it was Sikhs or Muslims mm-hmm. or anyone who could be mistaken for Arab in any kind of way by, you know, through ignorance. We were dealing with as a country after 9-11 mm-hmm. uh, with the increased violence. We were already at a heightened level right, of, of people having to deal with their identity and people feeling uh, not safe because they might be mistaken for Muslim mm-hmm. or they are Muslim, right, right? and being accused of things. Uh, and, and now we're on a, another level built on top of that level, right, <laughs> of people being afraid, of immigrants right. being afraid, of uh, people fearing for you know, deportation. Mm-hmm. You were here just before this new level of what we have under Trump, but now you're here also again you know, during that? And, you know, has that changed uh, the work? Does it, do you see it showing up in your work? I think so. Uh, and how you feel personally. I, because I'm experiencing all these things firsthand mm. uh, in my daily life, right? Mm. Uh, even in, in places you might not even imagine that these things would happen. So it's a part of my reality. And uh, when I think about the work I want to do, it's always inspired from my reality and my reality influenced the work I want to do because I think we as photographers, we usually look for answers for ourselves before we're able to provide answers to our viewers or our audiences. Mm -hmm. And I think every work any photographer does is kind of personal. So for me, that ignited the desire inside me to pursue this kind of work. And I think like now everything, not only in the US, but all, all, like all over the world, everything is about identity. If you go, if you like in, in the Arab region, people talk about their Arabness and their identity and their culture and that like you can, it's, it's involved in politics, it's involved in economy, it's involved in everything, like every single aspect of our, of our lives. Arts, education, yeah. I mean, photography. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Same in the United States and uh, same in Europe, same in Africa, different parts of Africa, same in different parts of Asia. It's like all over the world. It's the world we live in now. And identity can be religious, can be sexual, can be cultural, can be so many things. But for me, like I grew up in a country or in a society where like religion was something like very important uh, for all of us. So for me, I still like cannot escape it. Like when I'm in the U.S., people see me as a Muslim, so that gives them, like, a, they treat me in a very specific way or, like, they see me in a specific way. So for me, it was like, huh, why, um, why are they treating me like that? I'm not particular. Like, when I came here, I was agnostic. Uh, right. like, I, like, I believed in God and the way I grew up believing in uh, Allah, but now, like, but I wasn't particularly practicing any Muslim rituals or, but people started like treating me as I was like related to a bigger group of people that, and for me that kind of involuntarily pushed me to be a part of these communities because when you're on your own by yourself, you usually try to find people who look like you, who share the same culture, same faith or something like that. And when I was like, when I started, 
blending in with these communities i i like a, per, a very personal religious journey started until i was able to redefine myself as muslim and i kind of reclaimed my faith did you grow up more religious with your family or? Um, my family are not orthodox per se mm-hmm. but they were like they would pray five times a day they would fast ramadan right but still like like my sister goes to a christian school in Egypt. So it, they were not like super like religious. But right, right. They were like like average Muslims. Yes. Like <laughs> every, the majority of Muslims you would say, yeah, you would see all over the world. Muslim religion. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I don't think people see differences. Yeah. Right. Right. If if you're praying and you're a Muslim, you're a Muslim. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's all uh, um, the Quran and uh, um, Sharia law, Sharia right? Law. Yeah, like everybody. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. I mean, like even in Egypt. Yeah. Um, like if you take Egypt for example, like we don't really practice Sharia law in no. our courts, or no. even like this idea. Of like if you go to Egypt and say like Sharia law, people is like, huh? What are right. you talking about? Like, <laughs> but they still like they still like embrace their uh, religious cultures, both like Muslim and Christian, and at some point Jewish culture. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So then. Your, so your first story is is the story of you covering the uprising or, or your experience of the uprising. So the first story that was published in New York Times Lens was Northern Lights. Oh, okay. Uh, the one uh, about my journey and my friend's journey. Right. Well. So that's the visual diary. Yeah. Right, right. And, okay. and then I started working on uh, Muslim American communities. Right. And I did a lot of work for... Reuters covering uh, the Muslim American community in New York, New Jersey. Until last year, after the Parkland shooting, I pitched a story to the New York Times about uh, the increasing number of Muslims arming themselves because of the increase of hate crimes or different reasons behind their gun ownership. And uh, the pitch was approved, and I traveled across the country for three weeks mm-hmm. interviewing and photographing Muslims and their guns. So that was my second or third project. That's a fascinating one because um, I don't. it's not one that when people think of gun owners, right, they're not thinking of the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a, a kind of stereotype of who the gun owner is, a, you know, maybe Southern person right. Uh, right, in a very rural area, right. you know, that kind of... Yeah. Um, People talk about the Second Amendment. They talk about uh, the right to own a gun and all. Right. I don't think people are thinking of Muslims. But yeah. also, if you think about it, you'll, you'll see that Muslims always existed passively within the gun debate. Like if the shooter comes from Middle Eastern descent or was brown or has anything to do with the Muslim community, they would blame the whole population. Oh, yes, yes. And also, when I talk to people, like non-Muslim Americans, mm-hmm. a part of what they own guns is the because they want to fight terrorism and fight protect themselves and their families. And when you ask them about what do you mean by terrorism, they usually talk about Muslims or brown people for the most part. Um, so that was like the main reason I wanted to not expose, but like pass the mic to a different group of people who has Oh, have always existed within the gun debate passively in a hmm. very passive manner. Not being heard, you mean? Yeah. Heard. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. What did uh, you learn? I learned a lot. So many, like may, some of them were, they were kind of like embracing their American identity and take pride in their guns and their Second Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. Some of them got involved with guns because of like they grew up like playing video games. 
some of them were subjected to hate crimes or potential hate crimes, to be precise. Some of them are like they receive death threats. So uh, like Hassan Shibli, chief director of Care Florida in Tampa, came handgun owner reluctantly. Hmm. And yeah, it was a big group of people, very diverse, come from different cultures, different backgrounds. I also made sure to include Muslim converts because they usually don't exist in our discussion when we talk about Muslim Americans or Muslims in the United States. Uh, we usually talk about uh, Muslims who come from the Middle East or mm. the Arab region. And funny enough that Arab Muslims are not the majority of Muslims in the U.S. Until recently, as far as I remember, African-American Muslims were the majority, and then Southeast Asian Muslims, and then Arab mm. Muslims. Oh, wow. Uh, and then the majority of Arabs in the United States, as, well, as far as I remember, uh, are Christian Arabs. And wow. They're not Muslim Arabs. Huh. Uh, and of course, there was a, a strong Coptic Christian culture yeah. in Egypt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and of course, when you're also um, thinking back to the civil rights era, it was the Black Panthers who mm -hmm. were associated with having yeah. arming themselves to protect right. themselves. Right. And and then I did a story on enforced disappearance in Egypt for NPR. That uh, was a, about that was a story about a single family. Yeah. And and a, a mother who mom. was who had disappeared. She's still she's still in prison. Like uh, now we know and she's in prison, but oh, okay. she's we don't know like what charges she's facing or um she's not like facing a uh, fair trial. Mm -hmm. And her daughter Jihad, she's still like trying to advocate on her mother's behalf. So because I experienced like enforces appearance firsthand sometimes i would be like kidnapped and i wouldn't know like where i was where you're gonna end up yeah <laughs> uh when i heard of that jihad and her uh husband abdullah shemi who works for al jazeera were visiting dc i thought it was a very important story to tell and introduce this story to american audiences so they can also understand the um, relationship between the White House and the Egyptian government. Mm. Did you propose that story, or did yeah. oh you did? Yeah. Okay. Is that ba is that mostly how your stories have gone so far? Or yeah. Is your I usually yeah. pitch uh, my stories, mm -hmm. and that's, that's that's basically how I fund. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you uh, you talked work. about also working at a, a deli or a bagel store. What, I what? did. Like I work like <laughs> I I work like all the typical. Air quotes like immigrant jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so from like washing dishes to delivering food to working halal food cars. Well, you haven't done Uber yet? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I sponsored a, a friend of mine, Samir, from uh, from Bethlehem mm -hmm. to come uh, live here. Uh, and uh, if he started as a taxi. He started in restaurants mm -hmm. and then taxi driver and now he's an Uber driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's That's like a very typical immigrant. Route. Living the dream. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So the one story I couldn't really figure out uh, what was going on because it requires a password is the country's unwanted children. Yeah, it's a bigger version. It's a, like a longer version of Psychology of Hatred. Oh, okay. Uh, so that uh, was my thesis in grad school. Where'd you go to grad school? Uh, CUNY, journalism is school. Oh, so that's what you were doing here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, in 2017, by later, like late 2016, I applied for the master's program at CUNY. Uh, school of Journalism, and um, they made an exception for me because I didn't have, I don't have a bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. and it's a master's program, and they were so supportive, and... That's great. Yeah, I ended up doing my master's journalism in international reporting, and I graduated in December. 
Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to bring up. All of this is relatively new for you. Yeah. Right? I mean, like uh, the whole like the whole thing started almost like two years, <laughs> two years ago, two years and a half. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I, I realized that I'm still young in this industry. <laughs> uh, and You're I, doing very well. I have a yes. lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. Do you, do you imagine yourself... Uh, so, you know, the, we were talking about identity before, and, and it, it can cut both ways in some ways. Like, you would want to be the person to be called to do a story that deals with Muslim identity because that's important to you. But you also wouldn't want to be the person called on a story about Muslims because people see you as Muslim. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I think I think, I think think I'm fine with both mm-hmm. for different reasons. I want to be called to do a, a story on... Muslim Americans or Muslims or Arabs or North Africans because I'm native to the culture and I understand the nuances and how vulnerable these communities could be and I know how to navigate my way and do the best I can to tell the story as it is, not as it appeals to Western audiences. And I don't want to be also, on the other hand, I don't want to be the person who is being called to do a story on Muslim Americans because I'm Muslim, because at some point I think I also can offer a fresh uh, perspective to different stories. Yeah, you are, you, also, you'll have all the tools, all the journalism skills. and But yeah, yeah. but I think, I think, let me put this right. I don't think I would ever cover a different community than mine. And, and, and unless I do my homework, mm-hmm. uh, like do a lot of literature review and live with them for a little bit and take it slowly and try to understand the nuances of their cultures, not just like to parachute and start like taking uh, visually visually appealing pictures that doesn't do justice to the story or the narrative or represent them in a demeaning way. Yeah, and of course, that, um, there's been a lot of that in the, in the history of photojournalism. Yeah. And, and that that seems to have taken a turn for, for the good. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and, I, and I've, I've, I've done a lot of assignments covering different communities, in the, both in New York and all over the country. So, mm-hmm. uh, and for me, it was a very enlightening and learning process. I learned a lot. Like the last story I did for the Associated Press was about food injustice in inner city Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I spent almost a month in Inglewood, Chicago, hanging out with folks from the black community there and Latin American community. And it was a very, it was, I learned a lot and I, they really inspired me. Like I spent a month reporting and doing the story, but I spent like, much less photographing because I wanted to be there. I wanted to understand. I was completely new to the culture. Mm. So I tried to be cautious and take it slowly and gradually until like I understand the nuances and the dynamics of mm-hmm. this community. Yeah. So now you're here and, and um, are you able to communicate with family members? Or? Yeah. I, I, oh, good. Almost like I speak with my family like almost every day. And what, what do they think? think about what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) so in the beginning they were uh kind of frustrated (laughs) because you will never be rich uh, (laughs) as a journalist Uh, you can always go back to being a doctor (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and for for them that was a concern my financial stability but like now whenever like i publish a story uh or get any kind of recognition 
they would like call me in FaceTime and tell me like how proud they are, which makes me so happy nice. to be honest. Yeah, so like now they're being so supportive and it warms my heart. That's really nice. What does your brother do? Did you mention that? He he lives in Abu Dhabi, mm. UAE. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What does he do? Uh, he works for Zara, the company, the clothing oh, company. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I so now you're here and you're set up, uh you're working, you know, towards getting set up here and being based here for mm-hmm. as long as it takes. And you want to continue to propose work and projects and, and then start this docu-drama series. Yeah, but now I'm working on a project on Islam in American prisons. Oh, you are? Um, okay. So I'm trying to explore the Muslim population inside American prisons, why some of them convert to Islam, how they navigate their lives after they go out of prison. What does that mean for mm-hmm. them, for their families? for the Muslim community? Are they fully accepted? Are they not? So these are all questions I'm trying to find answers for. And that, that crosses into other lines of stories, right? With yeah. the private, privatization of prisons and the justice Absolutely. system yeah. and jury selections and all kinds of things, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and race, because right. the majority are African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So... It's the uh, the project I'm working on right now. Oh, interesting. Is that something that you've already proposed or just you're working on it? And yeah, I propose to... Um, you don't have to say who. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just like uh, when it comes out. Right. Um, <laughs> who knows? That could change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll continue like doing work on the Muslim American community for the next two years at least. Oh, okay. Why, yeah. do, you, why do you... Why two years? Uh yeah, it's like a sneak peek, but I'm trying to put my work on the Muslim community in a book. Oh, okay. And uh, now I'm working with Ed Kashi and Jim Zestrin. Nice. And uh, curating the book and uh, getting it done. That's great. Oh, <laughs> so, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And you were you were just at Photoville. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What were you presenting there? No, I didn't. I didn't have work this oh, this year. Oh, okay. Uh, but also, like in 2017, when I after my story was published in Lens, so many good things happened to me. Like I got my first assignment from Time Magazine in January 2017. Mm. Uh, I got accepted at CUNY, admitted at CUNY J School. I did uh, the New York Times Portfolio Review, and when I did the New York Times Portfolio Review, uh, I met with Idris Latif from Reuters, and he put me on work. What it, like Funny enough, I was homeless at the time. Wow. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's for hysterical. Me, that, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was selected to present my work at Photoville. I did Ada Adams photo workshop. I did Missouri photo workshop. Mm. I did some exhibitions in uh, the Netherlands, Australia. Yeah, so 2017 actually was a really good year for me. Yeah, yeah. Things started to really take yeah. off. Uh, and you're you have uh, you know quite a nice bio you know on your website and Thank people you. should check that out. And you're also a writer. I prefer to re- report and write my own stories. Yeah, yeah. Because when you spend more time, like photographers usually spend more time with their subjects uh, than most reporters. And this kind of observation that you have as a photographer allows you to have like deeper insight to the story. So for me, it's it's just like a personal preference. I'm I'm completely fine with working with reporters. I worked with a lot of reporters on different stories, but when it comes to um, a story that I want to do, I prefer to write it myself. The the piece on gun ownership for the New York Times, you co-authored with Adil Hassan. Yeah, I I reported the story and Adil helped write the story. Was uh was writing always an interest of yours as well? Uh, 
fiction. Oh, what's it? <laughs> fiction and maybe like poetry in Arabic, not yeah. in English. But yeah, I I like writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm more of like a visual person. So that's why I love poetry, for right. example, because right. it's so visual. It is very visual. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so yeah, that that creative, that creative uh, desire you had predated going to medical school, which you yeah. mentioned before. Right? It started. It yeah. actually started middle school and high school. What were you doing then? And I was like, I used to read a lot of fiction. And in high school, I started like reading nonfiction. And also like, I don't know, but growing up in the Middle East and uh, 90s and early 2000s, uh, we were always like watching the news and what was happening in Iraq and Palestine and Sudan, mm-hmm. all over like neighboring countries. I found myself like attracted to storytelling until like I was introduced to cinema and for me like that was like fascinating mm. a lot of pictures yeah a lot of moving pictures and for <laughs> me that was how would someone does do something like that but i always like also like had interest in photography and like lights and colors mm-hmm. and human emotions and like like when someone is sad like why do they look sad like why it's why is it like a universal language too mm. uh so for me that was kind of a way of communicating even with people that i don't speak the language and i remember one day we were having like uh we're doing a play at school and during the rehearsals i took a camera it was i think it was a fuji camera digital uh, or? no it was a film camera oh okay and i saw like taking pictures uh, of the rehearsals and I took the pictures home and uh, I was trying to play with the narrative. It was just like fascinating for me that how like I still have the everything preserved in like pieces of paper uh-huh. and I can like just play with the narrative and so for me that was so fascinating. Did you actually take a, a photography class in high uh, school? No, I no, I didn't. Were you in theater? No, I was. Yeah, I used to do a lot of uh, acting and writing for theater, mm. but uh, not photography. Yeah. Did you end up ever taking a formal photography class in the journalism uh, school? Or? Not really. The only photography class I did at CUNY was a photo editing class or advanced photo class with James Estrin. Mm-hmm. But yeah, beside like Eddie Adams and Missouri Photo Workshop, and now I'm doing the Anderson Ranch advanced program with Ed Kashi and Jim Estrin. No, these are like the only... Uh, yeah, so you, you kind of jumped into advanced classes. Yeah. <laughs> so you you taught yourself all the basics. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. Okay. Yeah, Did we, were there photographers in particular that you were looking at, or, or was it just pictures? So when I was on the front line during the different Egyptian revolution, I would see photographers risk their lives to document the truth. And for me, that was crazy. It mm. was wow like like why would someone risk their life to do something like that i didn't even know what photojournalism was until like i went home and i started like googling pictures wars wow pictures conflicts pictures revolutions and i would see like a lot of pictures that was so real they felt so real and that's how i was introduced to photojournalism Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, you saw it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started like researching and finding all these pictures. And I was like, okay, that's some, that's something I definitely want to do at some point in my life. But I didn't like, didn't go further. Yeah. (laughs) Did did that revelation also make you nervous in a way? Like that's a big change? Uh, Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, But now when I define myself, photography is a part of me. 
that's that's how I view the world and that's how I communicate. So yeah, and like now I'm just like I embrace it and I feel like it's uh, a part of who I am. Mm. The the prison story. Are you are you self funded? Are you going? Are you traveling around on your own dime? <laughs> uh, no, not oh good. No, <laughs> uh, I pitched the story to an outlet mm-hmm. uh, and they approved it. So once I start like doing the actual work, they're going to fund my my that's, my trips. That's great. Yeah. Do you, do you know how many prisons or anything like that? I'm still trying to get access to some prisons. Yeah, which is like a little hard. So we'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, once you do get set up in New York, and, and good luck, and if anyone knows of a, a affordable apartment, <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Just contact the show; I'll pass it along, <laughs> or visit the website. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, a, it's a part of our New York experience, it which is. we like. We at some point like we kind of uh, praise. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, once you once you get set up, then. Um, You'll have that base, and you work on the prison, and then work on the the this movie, which is is diaristic in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's really exciting to to think about. I mean, do you see it as um as kind of feature movie or? Yeah, it's, it's going to be a feature film. That's great. Yeah. Thank you, and thank, thank you, you for making the time come in. I know you're. Thank you for having it's me. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> trying to figure out. Uh, how to get together and where you were coming from and everything else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and thank you, Nicole Crane, for introducing you, us. This has been amazing. So thanks again. Thank you, Michael. Bye, everyone. Bye.